Welcome in. I have refrained from reviewing this movie. I'm sure we all understand why. Kevin Spacey has been accused by multiple people for having essayed them, if you don't know that term. I think he did what the accusers say that he did, and the first few accusers of his actually died, and therefore the charges were dropped. Which makes my stomach churn, because that points to Kevin Spacey very possibly having some powerful friends, or being his Frank Underwood character from House of Cards, kinda in real life. He has since been accused in England, and more accusers have come out about him here in the States, and Kevin Spacey was just found not guilty on all charges. I know not how. But anyways, there are so many more reasons that I love this movie, American Beauty, that are far beyond Kevin Spacey. I've addressed it. Let's review American Beauty. Spoiltacular. I cannot believe that this was a DreamWorks production. Before there was Shrek, there was American Beauty. Directed by Sam Mendes, who is incredible. He has gone on to direct Skyfall and Spectre. He also did Jarhead in 1917. All of his movies are high qualidad. So for the cast, we have Kevin Spacey as Lester Burnham, Annette Bening as Carolyn Burnham, Burnham is what I meant, Thora Birch as Jane Burnham, Wes Bentley as Ricky Fitz, Mena Suvari as Angela Hayes, Peter Gallagher as Buddy Kane, and Chris Cooper as Colonel Fitz. I personally think, this is also quoting a friend of mine who thinks this too, that every line of dialogue in this movie is delivered perfectly. None of the line readings sound off in any way. This is a testament to the phenomenally realistic writing and the skilled actors who can bring the words from the page to life, which is no easy task. Write down a sentence on a paper and then try saying that sentence naturally, like you're just speaking. It's hard because it's, it's hard not to sound like you're reciting something, which is not what acting should be. You should not sound like you're reciting. It should just be like you're talking. Props to the casting director for this movie's perfectly cast cast because casted isn't a word. We open on a video recording of Jane Burnham venting about her dad, Lester, to the camera, but also to the person holding the video camera. As she takes a break from venting, the person behind the camera asks, do you want me to kill him for you? Jane sits up, stares dead into the camera and goes, yeah, would you? Cut to black, sorry, African-American. Then we get a flying shot over the city which was actually supposed to be Lester floating in over the city and floating down into his bed. But they scrapped that instead, I'm super glad they did. And they just used these basic helicopter shots over the city. I think it works a million times better. There were dozens and dozens of pages and even minutes, tens of minutes cut out of the movie. So much was left on the cutting room floor and I'm glad that the director and editor had the discernment for what to scrap and what to keep because the product is near perfect. In the flying shot, Lester begins narrating and he tells us that in less than a year, he'll be dead. Based on the opening scene, we can only imagine how this is gonna play out. Lester wakes up in the morning, glad he didn't float down, and he masturbates in the shower. And he tells us that this is the high point of his day and it's all downhill from here. Then we cut to why that is. His wife, Carolyn, out in the front yard, worried about the precision of the rose bushes. Her OCD and perfectionism drive him insane. Then we see Jane in her room looking up breast augmentation surgery online. These first three scenes after the opening adds an immediate layer to all three characters. The lackadaisical nature of Lester, the controlling nature of Carolyn, and the insecure nature of Jane. 
as the audience, we're just dropped right into the middle of this strange yet relatable family dynamic. Lester admits in the narration that he didn't always used to be sedated and that he's lost something. But there's always a way to get it back, he says. Which we now understand his want, his desire that every protagonist or every character needs to have in order to be engaging. Doing things in the story with no discernible intent is empty. It's an empty experience for the audience. So now we know what Lester wants and is beginning to yearn for, which is his youthfulness, his spry go-getter nature. But I don't even think he knows it yet. It's such a gradual climb for him. Lester's called into his boss's office and given the task of writing out his job description for the board of uh, directors. Besides being hired, this is probably the first time in the 14 years that he's been writing for this magazine that he's going to have to convince his job of why he should be there. This is adding some pressure to his life. Some new neighbors have moved in next door. Actually, that's... whoops. It's the Fitz family. A military family where the dad goes by Colonel, runs a tight ship, has little tolerance for mistakes, especially intentional ones. Seven minutes into the movie, and we've covered a lot of ground. There's a lot that we've learned about the characters right away. In the evening, the Burnham family has a family dinner together, like they usually do in the dining room. And it's kind of a lifeless dinner. Lester's even hunched over and is kind of reduced to looking even pathetic. While Carol sits upright and has near-perfect posture, and Jane just disassociates from it all. She's like, do we, Mom, do we always have to listen to this elevator music? And Carol, Carolyn just responds with some sarcastic retort. So even Jane's desire for change is percolating. She probably hasn't asked her mom about the music up to this point. We don't sense the desire for change in her mom yet, but we do sense it in Lester and Jane, that they've grown unhappy for some time. This is kind of their breaking point. Lester asks Jane about her day, only to hear himself talk and respond after she gives like a one-sentence reply. He just goes on a rant about his day, and in the middle of it, he's like, you couldn't possibly care less, could you? Which upsets Jane, because how can her dad not talk to her for months, and then because he had a bad day, or even an eventful day, he just feels like, oh, the channels are clear, we can talk. Jane leaves the table, leaving Lester and Carolyn to exchange some words, and Lester has to do his insults like under his breath, and Carolyn's like, what? So Lester leaves the table too, because obviously he sees no point. I think he's cowering to Carol's abrasive way of, of confronting him. He goes into the kitchen, and he just, he tries to reconcile with Jane, and I think he does get through to her. We don't hear the full conversation though, because in the middle of that, we cut to that video camera. The same grainy video camera footage that we saw in the beginning of the movie. We also see the man behind the camera, Ricky Fitz, the new neighbor. Carolyn is a realtor, and she pulls up to this house that she is determined to sell today. She's trying to manifest it and will it into existence as she cleans the entire place, almost chanting, I will sell this house today. When she arrives, though, the house right across the street has a sign planted into the yard sign. Yard sign? And it's being sold by a different realtor, a rival realtor. His name is Buddy Kane. Based on Carolyn's reaction to seeing the yard sign, we can tell that she has disdain for him, but I actually interpret it as she feels deeply insecure about his success compared to hers. Carolyn even breaks down crying at the end of the day when she can't sell her house. Her sobbing turns into screaming and slapping herself, going, Shut up! Stop crying! which is so indicative of how a parent may have treated her during her upbringing. They actually set up three cameras in a room with Annette Benning, the actress, and did her crying scene in one take. Three cameras so they wouldn't miss anything. But that is so impressive. Now, we understand clearly what Carolyn wants in her life. She wants success and acknowledgement for her success. 
Then we arrive at the inciting incident of the story. Inciting incidents occur in the first act, and it sets the rest of the plot into motion. So for Lester, he sees one of Jane's cheerleading high school colleagues out there dancing on the floor, and he falls head over heels for her. The youth and rejuvenated feeling that he gets from seeing her kind of flips his world upside down almost immediately. Everything goes away and Lester is transported into darkness with a spotlight on that one single dancing cheerleader that we come to know is Angela Hayes. This scene is the second and most blatant motif that we get with the roses being symbolic and constant in the story. The movie has roses appear in so many different ways, starting with Carolyn plucking the rose branch, I don't know, it's not a branch. And now Angela is opening up her shirt and roses come flying out in Lester's little fantasy that he's having during the cheerleading dance. After the game, Jane and Angela walk out and see Jane's parents standing there waiting for them. Lester's demeanor is dramatically different from what we've seen up to now. And he's mighty inquisitive about Angela and what she's up to tonight. He doesn't realize how blatantly obvious he's being and totally embarrasses his daughter. In the very next scene, he's laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, but the ceiling isn't the ceiling. It's Angela laying in a bed of roses while roses fall down onto him. In the narration, he describes that it feels like he's been in a coma for the last 20 years and he's finally waking up. That same night, Jane and Angela are sitting in a car smoking weed. And we see that they have wildly different approaches to life and their, their outlook on themselves. Angela understands her beauty and aspires to be a model. She prides herself on men wanting to get with her, and she puts it a little bit more bluntly than that. Jane stays quiet while Angela is talking, and from what we have seen, Jane does not think very highly of herself in terms of beauty. She doesn't expect to be seen or heard by people, so she kind of keeps herself invisible. Jane gets out of the car, starts walking towards the house, and she notices somebody on the porch filming her. And it's Ricky. He stands up and he turns the light on on the porch, kind of revealing himself to Jane for the first time. Jane calls him an asshole and then goes inside. But when she does go inside, she can't help but smirk about it. Because for possibly the first time in a long time, she's being seen. She feels seen. The desire to feel seen for people is not a small deal. It is a big deal to feel seen and heard. Try telling me I'm wrong. It's the core of this very movie. All of these characters find people that see them, and it changes the way they live their lives. The intro to Colonel Fitz's character is my favorite in the whole movie. He's reading the newspaper, and Ricky's like, What's new in the world, Dad? <laughs> and Colonel's just like, This country's going straight to hell. His delivery of it is a lot better, but it's, I die laughing every time. The gay couple from the other side of the Burnham home, they come over to the Fitzes to, to greet the new neighbors. They say they're partners, and the colonel's like, oh, what do you guys do? And they're, they say their jobs, which are totally unrelated, and they all just sit there in awkward silence. <laughs> they probably had to clarify life partners, which then in the next scene, Colonel Fitz is just going on this rant about gay people in the neighborhood. He's really blunt about it. And to stop the colonel from continuing on with his rant about gay people, Ricky, he says something horrific about gay people. And Colonel is even caught off guard by what his son just said. But he's like, me too, son. And later we learn why, and it's actually really sad. At Jane's school, she points out Ricky to Angela. 
And Angela totally knows who that is. She even shares the town gossip about him and the fact that he spent two years in a mental institution. But Angela doesn't even have the whole story right. So what she's doing is only harmful to Ricky. It makes Jane more curious about him instead of having the effect that Angela meant to have with it. Jane and Ricky talk briefly, and I think Jane lets her guard down a little bit because of it. There's this fancy party that Lester and Carolyn go to together, and Buddy Kane is there. Carolyn is like starstruck by him, and Lester really couldn't care less about being at the party at all. His wife obviously dragged him there. The one silver lining to the evening for him, though, is that Ricky is there working working as a server and he makes conversation with Lester who's sitting there alone at the bar. Ricky goes, do you get high? And by Lester's reaction, we can assume that he probably doesn't get high regularly, but that this is the most perfect question he could possibly be asked right now. So they go outside and start smoking. The manager of the staff, kitchen staff, he comes out and goes, dude, get back to work. And Ricky just quits his job right there. He's like, don't pay me. Meh. Lester is so shocked by what he just saw, the stance that Ricky just took. He even says, I think you're my new personal hero. That is possibly something that he's dreamt for doing for years now, and Ricky just did it at the drop of a hat. As if the repercussions aren't going to affect him. Ricky says he has other revenue sources, one of which is selling weed, which Lester becomes a big fan of. Angela is over at the Burnham residence, and she taunts Jane because she knows Lester finds her attractive. So she's like, hmm, I'm gonna go talk to your dad. And that pisses Jane off because why would a friend do that? Angela does do that, and she goes and acts all flirty with Lester. He's frozen at the fact that she's here. I love how they play out her hand reaching out to him over and over. Sensual touch of any kind he probably hasn't felt in a long time, which is something that Angela even said to Jane. He fantasizes again about making out with her and even pulls a rose petal out of his mouth. When Jane says that Angela's going to spend the night, Lester's excitement causes him to, like, cough up his soda. He even listens in on Angela and Jane talking in their room, and Angela's taunting Jane more about saying all these things she'll do to her dad if only he worked out a little bit, and Jane's like, blah, 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 blah. But overhearing this causes Lester to go start working out immediately. In the bedroom, the two girls hear a rock thrown at the window, and they look out and see Jane's name written in fire burning in the yard. They know this was probably Ricky, even though it's a little much, a little early. Angela starts giving him a show, because obviously she would, but Jane sits down in front of a small mirror, and she's not looking at the mirror, but she is smirking to herself again over the act that Ricky just did, and Ricky zooms in all the way on the small mirror and sees her smile, and that's what he wants. He sees past the outer appearance and recognizes the internal beauty of a person rather than the external beauty that Angela represents, aka American beauty. The bedroom curtain gets closed and Ricky's focus then shifts to the garage with the camera still because Lester is in the garage. He's starting to work out and he strips down completely naked. He's assessing the state of his body off of what he's just overheard Angela say. So now working out is going to become a thing for him. So Ricky films that because obviously it's peculiar and that footage comes back around later into the plot too. The Colonel interrupts this to give Ricky a urine testing cup. It's time to test his pee to make sure that he's clean. Ricky's not clean which is why he asks if he can return it to him in the morning full. But he obviously has some clean pee in stocks that he's going to use. His dad agrees, and, and then he goes, you know, and just hesitates. And then he says, well, good night, son. And I find that so sad. Whatever he had to say, I wish he would have said. I feel like he was going to be loving and like a concerned parent, 
but not in an abrasive way, and he couldn't bring himself to do that. The colonel couldn't connect with his son and express what he had to say. It's such a small moment, but it's profound to me, and for the character of the colonel. That night, Lester has one of his fantasies, which in reality is just him masturbating. His wife wakes up and catches him doing it, which leads to a fight between the two of them. And Lester actually gets the last word. This is part of the gradual climb, is that now he's speaking up for himself and taking a stance against his wife's sexual neglect of him and mistreatment of him in general. Once he says what he has to say, he turns around in bed, now smiling to himself. He took some of his power back after having his nuts in a vice for so long. This isn't only about Angela. Angela represents something to Lester, and Ricky represents something else. Another aspect of that same thing to Lester. While Lester is out jogging, he sees Ricky and the Colonel out in their front lawn, so he decides now would be a good time to stop in and, in code, ask Ricky for some weed. It's so not smooth at all and really poorly coded, and it sends red flags immediately for the Colonel. As Ricky takes Lester up into his room to sell him some weed, this is an activity that the Colonel clearly doesn't know about and would lose his mind on Ricky if he ever found out. This starts the Colonel on their scent, and now he'll be watching out to see how Ricky and Lester interact. Seeing Ricky's whole videotape cassette video equipment collection, Lester recalls how he made money back in the 1970s. He had to flip burgers all summer just to afford an 8-track. Ricky's like, that sucks. But Lester's like, no, it was great. All I did was party and get laid, and I had my whole life ahead of me. And he says it with such tender nostalgia. His wheels are definitely turning, and these young people that he's recently met have been so unexpectedly impactful on him, his mindset, and his outlook. Back at Lester's job, he's written his job description, but treats it entirely as a joke. Nothing he wrote was serious. And before his bosses can fire him, Lester blackmails the boss into giving him a year's salary up front as he walks out the door. So he quits his job in a satisfactory way, gets a year's salary and one payout, making Lester's life having just improved substantially. He even buys his own dream car without his wife knowing. He doesn't tell Carolyn. All the while, Carol is having lunch with Buddy Kane, something she's not telling her husband. This is the start to an affair that occurs between the two of them, Buddy and Carolyn, because Carolyn feels inferior to Buddy and superior to her own husband. Carolyn's the type of woman that respects a man she feels inferior to, which is why she's so attracted to Buddy. Things start progressing there, even to the point where Buddy and Carolyn have sex in a hotel room after lunch together. Things are also progressing for Jane and Ricky, because after school ends one day, Ricky is filming Jane, and she tells him to stop, and he puts the camera away, and he goes, okay. And I think Jane respects the fact that he just respected her in that moment. So she's like, do you want to ride home. And Angela's off to the side going, uh, are you insane? No, he's not coming with us. So Jane goes, I'll walk with you then. Angela's like, that's almost a mile. You're going to walk with him. And Angela takes offense to that because she's not self-aware enough to understand Ricky and Jane's POV and what they see in each other. Lester goes through a drive-thru and sees that they're taking applications. He's coming from writing in a magazine, but on a whim he decides to apply to this uh, fast food restaurant and says he wants the least amount of responsibility while still being able to make some sort of money. Ricky and Jane go into Ricky's home. He introduces her to his mom and then takes Jane into his dad's office to show him some of the items that the colonel collects. 
Guns happens to be one of them, foreshadowing the ending. But Ricky's favorite item sits in a glass encasing, and he picks the lock to it. And maybe he doesn't lock it back up, which alerts his dad later that he was in there. Ricky's just showing Jane kind of his life, and he shows her some video footage that he's filmed in the past. And the video he shows her is of a plastic bag rolling around, flying around in the wind. And this is the most tender part of the movie. Ricky even becomes emotional at the beauty of seeing the plastic bag floating around. He says there's so much beauty in the world that he can't take it. He feels like his heart is going to cave in because of it. This shows Jane how widely misunderstood Ricky is. And so she leans in to kiss him because she actually does see him and she loves what she sees. Ricky obviously does too. The Burnhams have another family dinner and it's a little bit more eventful than the last one. Carolyn is laying into Lester for quitting his job that day because this is out of the blue. She doesn't understand Lester's transformation going on. That is, until Lester makes himself abundantly clear. Kevin Spacey was supposed to just drop the plate of asparagus on the ground to interrupt his wife because she interrupted him. But instead of doing that, he just chucked it at the wall. And so Annette Benning and Thora Birch, their, their reactions are legitimate. I love that they didn't break character. They just stayed shocked as their characters. But yeah, Lester stands up for himself in a really big way that night. After he says what he has to say, everybody just stays silent at the table. After the dinner, Carolyn tries doing some damage control with Jane by offering her some motherly advice, and when Jane doesn't take to it, Carolyn slaps her, hearkening back to when she was crying and slapping herself. I can imagine she's taking the treatment that she received from her own mother and is now dishing it to her own daughter. And based on Jane's reaction, she's pretty shocked. Like, I don't think this happens very much. But Carolyn leaves the room, and Jane notices Ricky standing at his window inside his house. So Jane walks to her window, and she removes her shirt and bra, and she reveals her breasts to Ricky. Thora Birch, the actress who plays Jane, actually thought that the nudity was necessary because it is actually something that would happen. She was actually only 17 at the time, and so her parents had to be there for it and approve it and all that. But I mean, she's right, because this is 1999. This is way before Snapchat. And for a girl or a woman to feel seen, the quickest and most potent way to do that is to reveal their bodies to their person of interest. Again, the music makes this a very tender moment. It's not meant to be out of some sexual deviancy. This is an intimate moment and an advancement in the growing relationship between Ricky and Jane that also reveals Jane's lopsided breasts, making it clear why Jane was looking up breast augmentation surgery in the beginning. The colonel interrupts this scene, however, by storming into Ricky's room and beating him for going into his office and snooping. The colonel suspects Ricky of taking items to sell for drugs. But Ricky yells, I just wanted to show my girlfriend, which takes the steam out of the colonel, and he sits down going, your girlfriend? So the colonel was correct about part of it, but he couldn't have imagined that his own son would have a girlfriend. He may have even suspected him of being gay for a while. He still does later on, too. The colonel feels bad for coming in and hitting him the way that he did, and he doesn't quite know to handle how he's feeling. So he resorts to briefly and sternly lecturing Ricky before just leaving the room. It's so bizarre how this movie will take the scene with Carolyn and Jane, then move that into Ricky and Jane, then move that into Ricky and Colonel, all kind of in the same scene. Cut to the next day, and Carolyn is at a shooting range, shooting a gun and, and heeding Buddy Kane's advice in how powerful firing a weapon makes a person that would otherwise feel powerless. 
This is more foreshadowing for the end, as we can see that Carol also bought herself a gun. It's sitting in the passenger seat as she drives and sings along to the music, happy as can be. She pulls into the driveway and sees Lester's new car, which obviously ruins the joy she's experiencing. But the two of them have a scene, and we feel like they're starting to connect again. They're being sassy and flirty with each other. But right as Lester begins to kiss her, Carolyn is more worried about the beer that he's about to spill than having this moment with her husband, which sets Lester off, and he rants about how materialistic she is and that the only thing that matters to her is physical possessions. And he's right, and Carolyn just storms off. Then we come back to the opening scene, where Ricky is filming Jane, venting about her dad. Not only does Jane vent about her dad, but before she does, Ricky vents about his own dad. Jane also adds that she recognizes how important Lester finds Angela, and she says, I wish I was half as important as Angela was to him. This is where Ricky offers to kill him, and she says, yeah. Would you? And Ricky zooms his camera all the way into her eye and sees that she's serious. Even though she says, you know I'm not serious, right? He goes, of course. Even though he had just told Jane about a story that he almost killed somebody, and he would have if people hadn't pulled him off him. He ends the scene by saying, do you know how lucky we are that we found each other? Because they both see how similar their souls are to each other's. The next day, Ricky goes to school with Jane and her mom, and Lester comes out to greet them as they're leaving, and he goes, hey, call me, to Ricky. We know it's about the marijuana, but the colonel sees that, and again, he assumes the absolute worst. He doesn't even suspect it of being drugs this time. He's thinking there's something going on between Ricky and Lester. So since Ricky is gone now, Colonel goes and does his own snooping. And he finds that videotape that Ricky took of Lester in his garage working out naked. And the colonel is so stunned that he has to sit down and come to all sorts of conclusions on his own. But he's wrong. He's not reading it right. Later we see Lester working in the drive-thru. And Carolyn and Buddy conveniently come through the drive-thru. And he recognizes their voices and, and confronts them at the window. He ends the scene by saying, You can't tell me what to do ever again. Because how could she? She's cheating on him. Instead of breaking up and divorcing her, he considers it a win because he gets to hold it against her. Moving forward. Because when they fought a few scenes earlier, they debated divorce because Carolyn brought it up and Lester knows that if she filed for divorce, he would be entitled to half of her things. So if he started the divorce, he would get nothing and probably has nothing noteworthy in possession that Carolyn would even want. Maybe the car? She's most likely been the breadwinner for a long time even though she can't sell a house, so I don't know. That's just another reason why catching Carolyn cheating isn't the biggest deal to Lester. It just makes sense to him, and he even says that. Jane and Angela are headed back to the house where Lester is, and he realizes that he's out of weed, so he has Ricky come over. <laughs> they deal in the garage, and the colonel peeks through the window and sees them and watches them, and what it looks like looks like a sexual act, but it's not. And it looking like that sends the colonel spinning. He doesn't know what to do, he doesn't know what to think. He even abrasively confronts Ricky in his room when he gets back because he thinks his son is performing sexual acts for money. And Ricky can't say anything that's going to convince him otherwise, so he just leans into it and starts saying, yeah, I do all this vulgar stuff, I'm, I'm the best piece of ass three states stuff, and it pisses his dad off so much that his dad kicks him out. He kicks him out of the house. And when Ricky really does leave, it causes his dad, the Colonel, to break down crying, showing us that the Colonel's persona is all an act. It's just a tough mask he's wearing. Things come to a head when Ricky asks Jane, if I had to leave to New York tonight, 
would you come with me? And she says yes, even though Angela's there too, like, hello. And the three of them fight, but Ricky ends the scene by saying how ordinary and boring Angela is, and that she knows it too. This cuts her to her core, and she storms out of the room, but she doesn't leave the house. Ricky and Jane stay up in that room for a little bit before they leave. The colonel makes a visit to Lester's garage as he's working out, and he tries to kiss him. Lester's like, whoa, whoa, buddy. You got the wrong idea. And the colonel had been reading the situation wrong the entire time, and he finally realizes that. Mixed with the rejection that he just got, this scene and the colonel's character comments on the stereotype of straight men who hate on gay people, and how there's a high probability that those same people have same-sex attraction. But they hate that they have it in their hearts, so they hate gay people to compensate for it or something. This is the catalyst that drives everything to the end of the movie, because the colonel just got rejected after having opened up in a way he never has before. He goes back into his home, and he gets a gun. Then sneaks back into Lester's home and shoots him in the back of the head. All because Lester is now the one single person on the planet that knows the colonel's secret. That he is probably a closeted homosexual or at least a sexually frustrated man just like Lester. But if he hadn't done it that night, Carol was on her way home going, I will not be a victim with her gun beside her. She was going to do it too. She had murder on her mind as well. Lester was just going to be killed that night. The colonel just took the burden off of Caroline having to do it herself. But before Lester gets killed, there's a scene with Angela in the living room, and they do actually end up kissing, and she confesses that she's a virgin. Even though she's bragged about all these countless times she's had sex, none of it was true. Angela just knows that usually people as attractive as her are having regular sex. But she's just a phony. She's putting on a show. So when she offers her body to Lester, instead of accepting her advance, he actually becomes more of a father figure in that moment, and he covers her. The fact that she's a virgin is what makes Lester stop, and he just comforts her instead. He just talks to her, because I think that's the real connection that each of them needed. It was just to talk to somebody. Angela asks him, how are you doing? And Lester reflects that it's been a really long time since somebody asked him that. And Lester recognizes that for the first time, I'm great. And this is when he shot and killed. The gunshot echoes throughout the house, making Ricky and Jane come downstairs and see Lester dead with a slight smile on his face. Ricky stares at it because it reminds him of the dead bird that he had told Jane about when they were walking home and how it was one of the most beautiful things he had ever seen, a dead bird. And now as Lester lays in a pool of blood with a smile, it's true beauty to Ricky, but not in a twisted way, in a wholesome way of finding beauty in the ugly things. Carolyn comes back home and finds her husband dead as well, and she has no idea what happened because she was about to do it. And she runs upstairs, hides the gun, and then sobs and falls into Lester's clothes that are hanging in the closet, showing us that she might not have followed through with it. Seeing as how she's currently reacting to his death, the reality of it is more shocking and devastating than she had anticipated, and that's where the movie ends. I think this movie is rich in human emotion, human psyche, and human exploration as a whole. The writer and director understand people, and I've, I've heard directors be called mini-psychologists because they see people in their profound complexity and they're able to emulate that in their work. What we're seeing on screen is fabricated and fake, but it's mirroring humanity in a real way. People can be really like this, and that dysfunctional. I love how this movie captures and explores people. I will always treasure this movie, even though I still think Kevin Spacey's a creep.
that's my review for American Beauty. Thank you guys for watching. See you next week. Peace.